0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. could have been me, but I my chance. It kills me to see your new romance. I was such a fool, but now I'm afraid for having my way. My name's Nora. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm Lawrence. so
0: beautiful I could tell you anything you want to know about perverts and
1: degenerates to me you're an animal Why? a child at home you're a dirty disgusting animal I'm a man and I, I will make you feel like a real woman I know you so well I know everything to you so well I know every
2: area you get these calls often
1: do you mean, do I imagine them, hear voices, see burglars under my bed, maybe? Do you get these calls often? Now I'm alive. You, you got a love. new teddy bear. Okay. Where's my luck? What happened to he mine? Is she a tramp? Oh, wait just a minute. Who the hell do you think you are? He can't
2: to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain.
0: Hello, hello.
2: Also back this week is Mr. Terry Frost. Ni hao. <laughs> this week, we are taking a look at the 1965 thriller, Who Killed Teddy Bear? Written by Arnold Drake and Leo Tetayakan. The film stars Sal Mineo as Lawrence Sherman, a waiter at a nightclub, and Juliet Prowse as a bartender named Norma Dane. Someone has an unhealthy obsession with Norma and keeps making obscene phone calls to her. If you don't want to know who that someone is or who actually killed Teddy Bear or robbed him of his ability to walk – oh, wait, sorry, that's the wrong Teddy Bear – I'd recommend that you turn off this podcast and come back after you've seen the movie. I don't normally do this, but it is available in Toto out on YouTube if you are in the States because I know it's a little tough to find these days, which is not good, but we'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, Heather – When was the first time you saw Who Killed Teddy Bear, and what did you think?
0: The first time I saw Who Killed Teddy Bear was back around 2012. Um, I'd heard about it for years, and I'd always heard there was this great, weird, lurid 60s film with salminio which is all i ever needed to know and i found it uh i'm not proud of this but as you mentioned it's not hard to it's not easy to find in the states i I found it on a torrent (laughs) and uh i don't regret it because the film just completely floored me it lived up to its reputation and more um i thought it was incredibly both i thought it was sad and Artie, and a great kind of peek into just sort of the seediness, uh, not only of 1960s New York, but just the seediness of uh, human nature in general.
2: How about you, Terry?
3: I first heard about it through the B-Movie podcast, in fact. Vince Rotolo, before, unfortunately, he died, talked about it on the podcast. And also, there's a cover version of the theme song to Who Killed Teddy Bear by Josie Cotton, which is really cool. So I actually heard the music before I ever saw the movie, and I saw the movie through YouTube, of course. It's crazy. It's transgressive. It really is unlike anything else I know from the mid-1960s or later than that. uh, There are a lot of parallels people make with other uh, movies, but this one is standalone, and it is murky and nihilistic and very, very ugly in parts.
2: I, I feel like I actually have something up on you guys with this episode. I saw this movie theatrically the first time. It was re-released back in I want to say early 2010, late 2009, and I went down to the Detroit Film Theater and saw it. Uh, it just basically what you said, Heather Salminio, in this lurid uh, sex thriller, and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm there. And but I thought <laughs> for sure it was a it was a period of time where movies would show at the Detroit Film Theater, the DFT and then shortly thereafter certain movies let's say but certain older films would get a re-release onto dvd so like okay yeah here's the i don't know uh, uh ledulo Le and then here it is out on criterion here's this movie and then here it is on criterion it was like this whole like janice films kind of marketing way of doing things like we're going to show you the movie in the theater and then we'll have the dvd available for you in six weeks and now you know about it and uh, you can tell your friends, and get the buzz going. But that never happened. There was no DVD release. And it was one of these big question marks where I just kept wondering what is going on with this movie. And I still don't know why it's not more widely available. But I wish that it was because it is a real mind bender. And, you know, Sal Salminio, Sal Mineo, I love Sal Mineo. And... His work is always so interesting, especially when it comes to sexuality, because it seems like he's always trying to prove something in these movies. And this movie, he's really, really trying to prove something.
0: Oh, I am so jealous. You got to see this in the theater, Mike. Oh, my God.
3: <laughs> I definitely think that uh, I'd love to see this one. There's a place called The Astor here in Melbourne where they do um, old movies. And I really got a suggestion to Zach Hepburn, who runs The Astor, to try to find a print. ...of Who Killed Teddy Bear and Play ...because I think it will play great to that audience. Uh, yeah, Salminio, I, I, I saw him earlier this year in Exodus... ...and there's a great scene of him being interrogated by David Apatashou... ...about what he did during the war when he was in the concentration camps. And it's an incredibly vivid scene... ...because basically he was gang-raped by Nazis in the concentration camp... And Minio plays that brilliantly. He won a Golden Globe award or may have been nominated for it for that role. A fantastically, um, intense actor. In this one, he um, ramps up that intensity to 11 with, uh, Lawrence, the character he plays in this one. It's a brave performance and incredibly memorable one.
0: Oh, I think brave is the absolute best word to use, uh, both for this performance and Sal in general. Just what an actor. Um, I know he was in also an early stage production of Fortune in Men's Eyes, which was like this very controversial uh, prison thing, where he um, with a young Don Johnson.
3: He directed a stage version of it in the late 60s, I think.
0: You're right. Yeah, so he's he's so cool. Minio's just he's intense and vulnerable, and just he he's just an actor that constantly crackles. There's like a fluidity to his performances and everything.
2: Yeah, I mean, most people will remember him as what Plato from uh, Rebel Without a Cause, where again he's really playing with the sexuality, you know, having the picture of Alan Ladd in his locker and just this whole, like, (laughs) is he, isn't he, yes, he is, but he doesn't want to be, all of this. And then that that was kind of his real-life struggle as well was always just this real interesting on-screen, off-screen conflict that he had going.
3: Yeah, there's a weird um, rumor going around that he had an affair with Bobby Sherman, the pop star. I think his career definitely suffered for his sexuality. He wasn't in the closet at all regarding that. And in 1960s Hollywood, that was definitely a no-no. So I think that even though he was a fantastic actor, uh, I think his career was kind of cut off in its prime because of that. And that's a shame because there would have been so many more good films we would have seen him in had his career not tanked the way that it didn't um, from about the early
2: 1960s. Yeah, and unfortunately, he's just, he's kind of a footnote a lot of times when it comes to even things like uh, Planet of the Apes. You know, he's the third mm. ape who comes back to Earth and escape from the Planet of the Apes, and he dies ignominiously, you know, almost as soon as he's there. And it's just like, oh my God, you, you've got Sal Mineo here, guys. Come on, let, let's use him a little bit better.
0: He was so underutilized in the Sixth Lake Sissies, and 70s. You know, it, it, I was just thinking about that rewatching uh, Teddy Bear today. It's just like, God, this. You know, he's just so brilliant, and it's like – I mean, I love cheesy 70s television in America, but, like, I mean, what what was he on? Like, uh, not Banachek, but, I mean, he was on – um, Columbo.
2: <laughs> he was it's on Columbo. He was amazing on that Columbo episode. I will tell you, you know that I love Columbo, and he was fantastic on that. And he wore these amazing huge glasses, and it was him being used by Hector Elizondo, and they're both playing Arabs. It was fantastic.
0: <laughs> oh, God. I love Columbo, too, but I just – Minio should have been in a lot more feature films uh, that he was, and um, unfortunately, "Who Killed Teddy Bear" as brilliant as it was, it didn't do a damn thing for anybody's career involved. It didn't kill anybody's career, but the film, you know, there's a reason why it's more an occult film group. You know, I mean, this film should be out like with the Criterion edition or something like that.
3: Yeah, and I think the other standout person in this one, whose acting stands out to me, is Elaine Stritch, fantastic oh. Broadway actor. She was in company. Her character in this one has an incredible kind of friendliness, but ambiguity, and there's that kind of sleazy underbelly to it, which we find later in the movie. Uh, I, I really like it because the character feels very lived in. It's not just somebody uh, reading a script and, and cashing a check. She really does invest in the role, and I really like
0: that in this film. Oh, definitely! Yeah, she's like this clamorous ball buster. <laughs> she she's so fantastic and just and and I I think lived in such a great word for it too because this film feels it's it's arty but authentic. It feels like everything in the film feels very authentic, but yet stylized. Which I I love it when somebody can kind of combine those two sort of contrasting elements together.
3: Yeah, the movie was really low budget and the nightclub scenes in particular where they cram lots and lots of people into a small space to make it look like a much bigger nightclub than it is. And there's that black couple doing the swim and the frug and things like that in the foreground. I really love those scenes of people dancing in the 60s. And I think the movie does it really well. The the dance sequences work well. The choice of pop music works well in it as well. And even though it is a fairly small set, you do still get the feel that it's a swinging nightclub in the village in the 1960s. And that kind of, I kind of like that bit of it as well.
2: Yeah, I definitely would have gone to that nightclub had, had I had the chance. I mean, that, that just— That's
3: Julia Pratt
2: there. <laughs> 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 and, and, and to see uh, Daniel J. Travanti as the doorman, the, the deaf-mute doorman, I mean, sure, yeah, let sign me up. Carlo is awesome let's talk about the opening of the film the opening has that that terrific theme song that we've already mentioned a little bit just this haunting spooky weird song and the way that it starts with this the the actual who killed teddy bear title card I don't know. I was reminded almost of like a, a deep red by by Dario Argento, where it's just like we set up this mystery and it's like, what the hell is going on here? Like this teddy bear head on the, with these two circles, like ones in there, and then there's a, a, I guess, a little girl. It's really hard to see a lot of times in this movie, and I don't know if it was. I, I wish I could remember back in 2010 or whatever if the movie was as and now this is a very technical term, smeary as it is on the, <laughs> the, the version that I've seen. Is the movie smeary for you guys as well, or was it just me? No, I got the British
3: DVD release. I picked it up after we, I first watched it. And yeah, it's smeary, and, and there are scenes where characters are out of focus and all that kind of thing. So it definitely has that about it. I mean, you could make the argument that this movie is kind of an American giallo uh, in the same way Deep Red is. It does have a lot of kind of elements of that in it, even though it is in black and white and doesn't have the vivid color palette that most giallo do. I think there's the argument that it's a kind of overseas cousin to a giallo.
2: I can see that too because there's the mystery that's set up almost immediately. There's these phone calls that are happening to Juliet Prowse, the Nora character, and for, what, the first 40 minutes were really questioning who's the person that is making these phone calls. And they set up all these red herrings throughout you almost expect the person on the other end of the phone to be wearing, like, the black gloves, right? Like, <laughs> to, if we were really going to make this a giallo, he'd be wearing black gloves. But instead, he's not wearing very much of anything. And reading uh, uh one, one of his biographies, apparently there was a lot of controversy about that, and they really had to emphasize that he was wearing uh, underwear in these shots, but there was supposed to be some implication that he was masturbating while he was talking to, to Nora.
0: Most obscene phone callers aren't going to be playing, you know, Parcheesi or Yahtzee.
2: <laughs> Spider Solitaire on their PC, yeah. yeah. And, and that's kind of essayed, too, by the fact that
3: he's playing with his abdomen while while he's doing that. So you get that implication that, yes, he is fapping while he's doing this. And it makes it sleazy, the fact that he's playing this stuff. The weird thing I found about the film, and the intriguing thing, too, is the sexualized body is not the body of the victim. It's Sal Minios in this film. And there's a very kind of gay gaze feel about it as well because they do concentrate on Minio who looks very cut in this movie and is in terrific physical shape. And less so of his victim, uh, the character played by Julia Prowse,
0: yeah, again i i love that because it, it, it puts you definitely in like i think an interesting headspace as a viewer because yeah we're we're so sort of conditioned to expect to see sort of the female she's the victim she's gonna be naked a lot and we see her a little bit in her bra panties but it's like it's not ogling her it's just like she's getting off work she's changing into her night clothes or whatever it's very like very normal where the shots of him are very love lascivious is a good word yeah um yeah. And, and that, but that's just one of the many cool touches like I don't going back actually real quick to the intro or the credit sequence one thing I love is like there's uh I actually have the phrase sad lurid obfuscation because <laughs> like you have that amazingly just sad song where you keep hearing the refrain of does anybody care at one point and you see movement but you can't tell what's going on but you feel like you're seeing something you shouldn't be seeing and there's that that, that whole sort of wonderful polluted feel throughout the whole film of just you know an under, an underbelly which of course I love because <laughs> I'm a sick little yeah. monkey but <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> also I think that with the red herring aspect of it as well I think one of the red herrings works, the Dan Travante one works, but I couldn't really see the guy along in the bit being Jan Murray, the detective. No, no. He didn't look like he had that kind of a body.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Dave, yes, Lieutenant Dave, which I love the fact that our he's probably the closest thing we have to a male hero in the film, and he's but he's just as damaged. Like, this whole film is full of damaged characters, except, you know, except for Juliet Prowse. Except for Nora. Like, she's... You know, she's almost I mean, she's not an innocent, which actually I like the fact that they didn't go that route either. Because it would have been too easy to have this naive, innocent version, you know, in the city. It's like that, you know, she's a, a functional, well-balanced person surrounded by just sexual dysfunction and crime. Um, and Lieutenant Dave, I, I get he's making fun of uh, Carlo. Daniel T. Travanti for being deaf. And it's like, damn, what a jerk. This is our hero. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but but again, that's kind of a cool touch because you're, you're giving no easy answers here.
3: Yeah, and he does have that kind of underbelly about him as well with the fact that he's listening to all of the evidence on audio while he's at home. And he's got a really decent uh, setup for the tape recorder. But he couldn't invest in a set of headphones so his daughter in the next
2: <laughs> that daughter is going to need years of therapy. My god.
3: <laughs> All the so horrible bad, things kid. as you said somebody mentioned that um the kid sounds like a homicide detective. Not not a good book for a child. Uh, it's it's not going to end well.
2: It's like this movie needs a prequel and a sequel because like we have that that backstory when they're at the club and the the head waiter or the the host or whatever maitre d that's the word I'm looking for is saying like oh yeah this is a, a you know much nicer joint than where we were at in the village and you know Carlo doesn't get to rough up people too much anymore <laughs> and it's like. I want that story. I want w- what they were like in the village. And then, then we get the sequel, which is the daughter who snaps and starts murdering people because she's been exposed to all this horrible lurid sleaze that the that the father has played for her every single night when she's trying to sleep.
3: Yeah, you uh, can even have bits of this movie as a flashback to that. Nobody except Julia Press, he doesn't seem to have any sexual desire over her own, which makes it kind of interesting. Everybody else is somebody that you wouldn't want to be anywhere near at any time of your life, with the possible exception of Elaine Stritch, who you could go out and get drunk with very happily,
2: as long as you're not a vulnerable woman. Because, I, like, yes. I was reading about the movie, and it was like, you know, oh, and this older lesbian, and I was like. Oh, she's a lesbian. I forgot that she was a lesbian. And, and because at first it just seems like she's very caring for Nora, just wants to make sure that she's okay. And then there's that kind of quasi seduction scene that happens later on. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, now I remember that she's a yep. lesbian. So
0: the, one of the most awkward seduction scenes. Mm. Oh, God, that's. I I don't know why just hearing somebody just go, that's a good baby. It's like, oh my God, get her out of this room, away from this woman. This is not healthy.
3: There's nobody in this movie that does chat up very well. Detective Dave is rotten at it. Lawrence is really rotten at it. And Elaine Stritch's character is super rotten at it. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) knows how to have a conversation of get to know you and, and I'm interested in you. None of that. It's all kind of stuff that makes the person you're talking to want to have a shower
2: and hey don't forget there's that amazing small role uh, of frank played by bruce glover who's just talking all about how easily uh, Nora's apartment is to be broken into and when bruce glover shows up i mean he's only in the movie for like two minutes but it's just like is he the killer is he the one making these phone calls (laughs)
0: Bruce Glover just has that kind of face. He just has the killer face.
3: <laughs> uh, he always ups the Andy on the sleaze in any movie he's in. I, I just love Bruce Glover in in any movie I've seen him in. And, of course, he was in *Diamonds Are Forever playing one of the two very camp gay killers in that one with Cutter Smith.
0: I love his partner the way he keeps looking at him when he's like, "Oh yeah, a ten-year-old could break in here, basically." <laughs> and his partner's totally looking at him like, "Dude, shut up, okay?" She's already freaked out.
2: Explain <laughs> the breaking, Yeah.
3: This movie is set in the New York where only one person has social skills. Everybody else is totally shit.
2: Yeah, I think the only other person that I would actually want to be around is uh, when we finally get the reveal of Lawrence's sister, Edie. And I don't know, she reminded me a lot of Talia Shire. I don't know what it was, but uh, Margot uh, Bennett, I thought she did a great job of playing a woman who is damaged as a child, uh, physically slash mentally damaged as a child. And then who is now in a woman's body, and there's – as later on in the film, there's a scene where she is being a little sexual, and Lawrence is freaked out about it. But it's like, yeah, she's a woman. She's not a little girl, even though she acts like a little girl.
3: Margot Bennett's really interesting because she was the first wife of Keir who was in 2001 and the first wife of Malcolm McDowell. And she did have a stage career, but uh, only has three things coming up on IMDb. But yeah, I think she definitely had chops as an actor, and she does put that across in a way that's not kind of condescending or dumbed down. And I really like that film. I think she's definitely punching above the weight of the movie
2: in playing um, the, the sister, Edie. Yeah, she easily could have gone Rosie O'Dowell on this thing. Oh,
0: God. Don't even, <laughs> oh, no. Why would you even mention
2: sorry, that? Guy? Sorry, sorry.
0: Oh, no, she's, I thought she was wonderful. And just, I, you know, that's the thing I kept, especially when I first saw it, you know, you you feel sort of protective of her because she, she is basically, you know, this child woman. And, you know, this is the 60s, too. I'm like, if something happens to Lawrence, which it's going to, yeah. <laughs> like, what's going to happen? She's going to become like, award of the state, I mean, it's just you just feel so bad. There's just so much sadness. Yeah. It's a very
3: nihilistic film, ultimately, and um, nobody comes out of it undamaged, in a sense.
2: The only only bright spot of the film is the delightful zoo montage. (laughs) <laughs> which just feels like it's from uh, almost like an educational movie. Like I was waiting to see Joel and the bots in the corner and them start making fun of it, you know, cause it just felt like it was from a whole other thing. And it's just like one of these great coincidences where sure, uh, Lawrence and his sister and then uh, Nora, the cop and the daughter all go to the zoo on the same day. And they just happen to meet up, but it's like, you know, the music playing was fantastic. <laughs>
3: And the only thing they actually go and see are guinea pigs and goats, right? Right. (laughs) And
0: chickens.
3: (laughs) there's a lot
0: It's
2: like the worst zoo (laughs) in the world.
0: (laughs) Oh god! It's uh, yeah. That it is like kind of a nice little, like a a brief kind of moment into the daylight before we get back to the uh, underbelly of Forty Second Street, New York. Which I don't want. Oh my God, were you guys floored at the bookshop? There is like some great. I want, I wish I could go back in time with a bag of money and (laughs) snap up everything. And it's so, and I love it too because you see like these lurid, I mean, obviously pretty porny uh, pulp novels right next to like Naked Lunch and Hubert Selvi's Last Exit to Brooklyn. Like this is.
3: I do know a shop in Sydney, a secondhand bookshop, where you can buy some of those books. Oh, wow. They have, it's in a massive warehouse-y kind of place called Gould's. And there's a corner where they have um, 1960s and 1970s porno novels, and you can still get some of them.
2: I still like your time travel idea, Heather.
0: Hey, between that and then, like, you know, we see, uh, we see Lawrence just in a fit of, of fevered sexual repression goes... Down to a, a, you know, basically kind of a grindhouse showing a double feature of uh, Call Girl Seventy Seven, which I would love to see. I'm, I'm not familiar with this one, and um, I think there's a um, film I'm, World of Flesh. I think it's the second yeah.
3: feature. I'm downloading a copy of Call Girl Seventy Seven on the torrent at the moment.
0: Oh, oh my nice. god! I love. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the internet age. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's what Larry would be doing today, is, like, you know, there in front of his computer.
0: (laughs) Watching Call Girl 77. And being very
3: unsuccessful on Tinder.
0: There's this whole, like, motif that pops up about animals, because, like, Dave at one point flips out – on Nora. I mean, just out of nowhere, he's like, I'm not one of the animals, and, you know, I'm not one of them, even though he's acting completely like like an animal. And then later on, there's amazing, just some of my favorite dialogue between him and one of his workers at the precinct, where he just, the guy says to him, Dave, you've joined them, and that we're all animals. And it's like, whoa, that's the heaviness of that statement. It's just, it's it's
3: pristine. I'm amazed that given dave's backstory and and what happened to his wife and things like that they let him back doing that job it's an amazing thing (laughs) it's kind of like yes we are you know his wife got raped and mutilated and murdered so we're going to put him back in the job of catching people who rape mutilate and murder women it makes a lot of sense he's got experience (laughs) it's just the wrong thing he's got vigilante cop written all over him and and Dan Murray playing the role, I don't think he's terribly good at it, but he commits to it.
0: To me, he almost had this very – like um, almost more of like a 1950s sort of G- – not a G-man <laughs> kind of, you know, like that sort of like hard-bitten – ta- he definitely yeah. seemed to be playing um, sort of an archetype. I mean, I think it works. I not have a problem with it. It's almost sort of a weird uh, thing to see next to somebody like Menio, or even – I thought yeah. Julia Prowse was amazing in this, and she's yeah. very – yeah, vulnerable, but you know, at times she's tough. You know, she's a she definitely brought a good like layer to yep. you know a victim character. This movie is just full of great character actors. Like Mike, I, I know the script. You mentioned the perverts at the police station, oh, and
2: yeah,
0: how amazing was Adler? I love. <laughs> I mean, he's he's horrible, but he's amazing. <laughs> He saw it. Oh, a girl yeah. gets strangled with the pantyhose. Who do you bring in? Adler. <laughs> oh, see how it is.
3: <laughs> yeah, that actor's Tom Aldridge. And uh, yeah, he, he does. And it's nice that they give them those moments, too. They bring the actors in and they do give them a bit of a moment to shine. Uh, let's see, what else was he in? He was in The Assassination of Jesse James, the um, movie with Brad Pitt in it as well. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah, he had a long Yeah, career.
3: so Boardwalk Empire, he was in that. Uh, damages. The sopranos, of course, because everybody it looked like that was in The Sopranos.
2: If I had one regret, it's that Daniel J. Travanti disappears at one point, and we just never get him again. I was kind of hoping he would be the deus ex machina at some point and come in and save her. But the horrible thing about this movie is that no one gets saved, and that her rape by Larry is just... That is heartbreaking. And that's one reason why this is a hard movie for me to watch uh, often at all because it, that scene is just, it tears the guts out of me.
3: Yeah, it's got a kind of realism and a non sensationalism that punches home what's happening.
0: Well, and I think the reaction to both of them. To me, is, is what I found especially heavy because she's just, you know, she's just destroyed. Cause I mean, that's one of the worst things that can happen to anybody. And Larry, you know, once it's done, seems shell shocked. You know, it's not like your classic sort of villain where it's like, ha-ha, I just violated you, you know, or anything like that. It's like Minio just giving you, you don't want to have empathy for this guy. He just raped yeah. her. He's, you know, but yet he's a human. And so and that's one thing I really respect about this film is that it, Because that's kind of like real life. Real life has, I mean, people that do horrible things, sometimes, I mean, they're human too, and they might have things that aside from the deeds, you're like, oh god, this poor person, and then you see that they've done something terrible, and you're like, oh shit. But, you know, (laughs) like, but it makes you think, and I I love it. Like, this film is a a film that respects its audience.
3: Yeah, and then there's also the fact that He's murdered somebody, and now he's raped somebody. And the rape is the one that affects him the most, which shows how twisted the guy is in a lot of ways and, and that he realizes that he's fallen off a cliff, a moral cliff. And after that, we get that great end scene on the streets of New York in wintertime. And I love the fact the movie's set at winter with him being chased by the cops, who all seem to be in taxi cabs. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, jumping back a little bit, I mean, poor, I hate to say poor Larry, but poor Larry, I mean, everything is so warped for him as well. I mean, him having to take care of his sister is his fault, kind of, and it was because his sister happened to see him and this neighbor lady having sex, and the sister kind of loses it and runs down the stairs, falls, and then that's what damages her, and that takes us back to the opening credits. But it's just like, so now he is, and I hate to use the word burdened, but he is now responsible for the sister, and it's all now tied up in sexuality. And now he feels guilt over that moment that he had sex, and so now everything is just wrapped up in this whole thing. Everybody is so damaged in this film, with the exception maybe of Nora, and now she's damaged by the end of it. Now she has this horrible thing that she has to live with for the rest of her life.
0: Well, and I noticed there's sort of a lack of parental family roles in this film, because, of course, Dave's wife, you know, was murdered. And so he's mm-hmm. a single father. So there's no mother for that little girl. There's no parents. I mean, because this is the thing, like, I'm trying to figure out the timeline, because Larry's probably in his mid-20s, I would guess, here. Yeah. And Margot just turned 19. But she mm-hmm. looks a lot. I mean, she's like a little girl in the flashback. And so it's like, so was he, you know, this did a babysitter prey on him, you know, and kind of warp his mm-hmm. sexuality? Were are the parents? I mean, it, it makes you kind of – it brings a lot of questions to mind and none of mm-hmm. – which, you know, none of the answers are going to make you feel uh, particularly better about the human condition <laughs> yeah.
3: at and all. Maybe a li- yeah, maybe a little more twisted than that because we don't actually get told it's a babysitter. It could be his mother. Oh.
0: oh, Oh! damn. Yeah,
3: which wow. goes, gives it that extra layer of, yeah, that's what I thought when, I, when that ambiguity came up. I thought, is it a babysitter or is it his mother? Because if it's his mother, that really makes a new cascade of guilt and horror for Lawrence and explains what's actually happened a lot more powerfully, I think.
2: You went there, Terry. I love it.
3: I did go there, yeah, <laughs> because it's, there, there is no context for that scene.
2: No, <laughs> and no, so, not at all.
3: don't know no, one way or the other what, who that person is with whom he is sleeping.
0: My mind is blown. <laughs> wow. It's, uh, well, that's a, kind of the beauty of this film is that, um, like, Joseph Cates, the director, gives you enough to chew on, but yet there's enough sort of, right down to even the visual level, as you were talking about earlier, Mike, with something seem a bit, um, what was your word, smearing?
1: Yes. That the word?
0: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um it's hazy you know there's a haze so you're never quite sure and that's god that's a that is a twisted theory that kind of works really beautifully
2: yeah it does i get twisted very well larry's fantasy world like when he fantasizes about what it would be like to be with nora it's all non-sexual type of stuff like them frolicking in the pool Or her, it it almost, I mean, it almost looks like a cemetery to me, but when he's running from the cops and he's fantasizing, it's like this almost, I can't say it's a pastoral place. Like I said, it looks kind of like a cemetery and he's running towards her and he'll just never reach her. And it's like, these are weird fantasies for you to be having. It's not like he's having sexual fantasies about her, even though he's masturbating to her. But like when he is picturing stuff, it's almost this more idyllic type of life that he will never have.
3: We kind of romanticism, isn't it? Where at one level he's he is masturbating about her and ultimately, unfortunately, rapes her, but he's still got romantic fantasies about her after that, and that's deeply, deeply
2: twisted. And when he's there on her before he rapes her, and he's just like, Love me, I'll do anything, I'll do anything, it's just like, Oh, god, yeah, you're right, I would definitely have to swipe left if I saw if I read his profile because I just saw the picture. <laughs> And <laughs> maybe I'd swipe right. If I read the profile, I'd probably swipe left. Yeah.
0: Well, that's another, like, again, just genius casting. Because on top of being, as, as we talked about, a great actor, I mean, you know, he was a good looking guy. He was this very, just very cute. He was, I mean, he was a teen idol in the fifties and just, you know, not like it would have been so easy to have, you know, somebody who's, you know, physically where the audience is like, Oh God, that creeper. And instead you're looking at him and he's like, that's a good looking guy. And then, but he's damaged, you know, it's the, it's the candy with the, the rotten center kind of thing. And, uh, you know, God, I just I miss Salminio.
3: <laughs> and there's a great dance sequence where Julia Prouse's character Nora teaches him how to dance, and then suddenly he's dancing in. For me, it seemed to me a very gay kind of dance club kind of look about it. That I was Salminio really kind of cutting the
2: rug of it. Yeah, I I love that. It's like. At one point, they're like, hey, we got some new records in. And I think they only have, like, two songs that they ever play at that club. (laughs) (laughs) But they're pretty good songs. They're good songs. Yeah.
0: Oh, they're fantastic. It's kind of like the uh, like Michael and Roberta Finlay's Flesh films, where there's really like two pieces of pop music used, but they're so freaking good, you don't mind it. It's like, yes, play the right kind of loving again, and you're going to hear it again, so it works.
3: I'm, I'm a big fan, too, of tiny nightclubs in low-budget movies, where they try to make it look like it's a much bigger place by cramming lots and lots of people in the small spaces. You see it in all sorts of kind of exploitation films of the era, where they will have a place that's about the size of a single car garage, and they cram 20 or 30 people into it to make it look like a really big swing and joint, and it never quite works, but I'm always fond of it as, as an approach in those kind of films.
2: And to see all the old men dancing with the young girls, it's just like, what kind of club is this anyway?
0: It's the Sugar Daddy Club. That brings us back to
3: that police interview thing where um, Elaine Stritch's character in there, and Jan Murray says about uh, Nora, Is she a trap because he, he assumes that she works in that nightclub; she's some kind of sex worker.
2: She's a floozy."
0: I know. Did you guys get the feeling that uh, that Elaine Stritch's character was a madam at one point? Because there's like some dialogue early early on. Well, not just the village thing, but the maitre d' where he, he makes some kind of like wisecrack to her and she's like, you know, do me a favor, just put on your French accent and do your job or something like that. And yeah. I don't know why I just got this feeling. I'm like, I bet she was, I bet she was peddling some ladies.
2: <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Wow. We're uncovering the the sleazy underbelly of Teddy bear here.
0: It, it just gets sleazier and sleazier.
2: <laughs> there is only sleazy
3: underbelly in this movie. Yeah, Sleazy underbelly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, even the daughter, because like yep. the the first scene where uh, Lieutenant Dave uh, brings Juliet Prowse to the apartment, it kind of give her a safe place to say the daughter's immediately like, she's pretty. Is she a hooker? Like, <laughs> this kid's 10! Why is this kid thinking daddy's freaking home hookers? Like, what? <laughs>
3: Maybe daddy has before. What? Could be.
0: He, he's not very good about hiding anything else, apparently. Oh. So, I mean, what is your theories? What are both your theories on why this film is more celebrated? Because is it the sleeves factor? I mean, because you have a respected cast, you know, that have all, like, multitudes of great credentials. Um, it's well-made. It's the editing. but thought the editing was quite tremendous in this, including, like, some of that Flash, like those super Flash cuts, which you really did not at all see at, at 65. I mean, you saw it pop up a little bit more, like, with Hodorowski and Fando Elise and uh, Easy Rider. But 65, oh, my gosh, not really... Um, you know, it's the music's great. I mean, it's got all of these great factors, but it's like, you know, I don't know, were main, mainstream critics so repressed back then, and even to this day, I think to some degree still, where it's just like this film didn't have a chance to really blossom like it should have.
3: I think it may be a rights thing too. It's not owned by a big studio, and, and these movies tend to get released more often if the rights are owned by a big studio, and maybe they're even a bit clouded. I know that there was the British release that I've got, but. Uh, I think we're waiting for a Criterion or for one of the big guys or even Vinegar Syndrome or somebody to release this film to to an American audience and I think it'll get a lot of oxygen if it ever does get that release.
2: I can't imagine it's those two pop songs that they play in the club are uh, tied up in rights issues or anything.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. Well, and the sad thing is like now, it's like the main cast. I, I think we're all dead. I mean, because Julia Prowse died. She died really, she died pretty young of cancer back in the 90s. Elaine Stritch. Yeah. Is Elaine Stritch still with us? She died a couple of years ago. Oh God! I there's so many, but so many celebrity deaths. I'm starting to feel like I'm in the movie Phantasm or something, and the tall man's like messing with my mind. <laughs> it's like somebody will die, and I'm like, I thought they
2: were alive. Or somebody will die, and I'll, I'll have thought they were dead forever ago. Like Vets Domino just died. I'm like, wow, he was still alive. Oh, God. I thought
0: the same thing, Mike. I felt so bad, too, because I love Fats Domino, but I, I seriously thought he died a few years
2: ago. Well, when sorry, Richie Fats. is when Richie is singing Fats Domino on Happy Days, I'm like, okay, well, that guy's already super old at that point. And so, how old was he when he was making hits? Was he 20 years old? Was he 15? He must I mean, have been. He was about
3: 89 when he died, so, you know, he'd, he'd blown out a few candles in his day. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> One of those things is you think people die mostly because some of them suffer from dementia or other kind of infirmities. You don't hear from them for a 20-year period before they die. And you assume that somewhere they jumped on the rainbow. But they're still around in some way, but they're just not in any way in the public eye.
0: Yeah.
2: I think Daniel J. Travanti's still around. I'm not sure about any of the other – I mean, and I can't even – I don't even know if I would call him a main player, but – I love the guy, and I was so happy to see him show up. I mean, big Hill Street Blues fan back in the day, so when he showed up. It's oh, like, yeah. Oh, hey. Great to see you. Bruce um, Glover's still yeah. Is he oh, still he around? Is. Okay, good, yes, good. He good. is,
3: yeah. Um, IMDB says he's in an Untitled Crispin Hellion Glover project in post production, playing Apollo slash Old Brutus. <laughs> and he's last. His last credit was in a movie called Influence in 2015, so... Okay. Yeah, he's still around and still able to function at some level, I suppose. Good, good.
2: Yay, Bruce! (laughs) (laughs) All right, on that happy note, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back after these brief messages.
1: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the Projection Booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Projection Booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the Projection Booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
3: You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. (laughs) I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh,
2: Yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on Smack.
3: Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People
2: are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes.
3: We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on
2: iTunes. Well, that is one—that <laughs> is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you, the worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Is Carl Kolchek. He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News. And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS.
3: What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi.
2: Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual?
3: Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire.
2: And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com.
3: As foolish a game as
1: any that Gordy the Ghoul could make up. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. (laughs)
2: we were back and we were talking about who killed teddy bear we mentioned you know 1965 there weren't a lot of films that were doing this the one film that i kept being reminded of while i was watching this was alan Barron's blast of silence and i kind of wish that this also got that blast of silence treatment and come out on the criterion i was reminded of blast of silence a lot because of the winter setting uh, because Blast of Silence is very much a a Christmas movie, believe it or not. Uh, I was reminded of it because of the uh, just that kind of low-budget American, almost like a a new wave or neorealismo type feel, especially those shots of Juliet Prowse when she's walking down the street and we're tracking her in a a vehicle, it looks like. And that's also a, a really nice moment in the film because we have, I mean, always, always the viewer is the voyeur in these films, but we are really put into that voyeur place by watching Julia Prowse, the Nora character, go throughout her day. And then it's interesting because that keeps getting played upon. Like even the cop later on is like, "Haven't you had enough chlorine for one day?" And it's like, "Oh, how did you know she was swimming?" And yet, and then Salminio's character is at the auditorium, so it's like. Okay, but um yeah, those scenes I thought were, were fantastic. The only thing missing was that uh crazy hard boiled uh voiceover uh that Blast of Silence <laughs> had <laughs>
0: I think Blast of Silence is a brilliant film to bring up. Uh, parts of this film actually made me think of a 1960 film that I'm completely uh, in love with. And it, all, it is also in dire need of a good release, uh, which is uh, The Incident, the Tony Misante and Martin Sheen film. And the since there's a great, you have sort of a great jazz piece of music that the film opens with. There's a very gritty, you're getting a very gritty side of New York. Sort of the human nihilism factor is definitely there. And it's full of just great character actors. I think the two would be a really amazing double bill um, that you'd probably want to be drinking heavily afterwards.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I love to do is look at the billboards and and the movie marquees and things like that. The fact that they had the stage version of Any Wednesday with Sandy Dennis in it, all the movie billboards, and trying to work out. I actually freeze-framed a couple of times to see what what stage production she was going past. There was Hello Dolly there and a whole bunch of other things. So they definitely give you a feel of Broadway and somebody going to auditions all the time, even though they don't let you into the buildings at all. But uh, just that kind of thing. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Sweet Smell of Success as well, even though it isn't as polished and, and brilliant as that. It's still got that kind of sleazy underbelly of New York feel about it.
2: And for me, of course, I mean, Heather, we've talked so much on this show about taxi driver, especially when we were talking about water power. And for me, Larry is another prototype Travis Bickle. I mean, it it seems like. If he ever got Nora to go out on a date, they'd be popping down and going to see Call Girl 77 together. <laughs> no, no, all couples like this. No, no, there's couples in here all the time.
0: Oh, God. Yeah, she wouldn't even make it to World of Flash. <laughs> 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 She'd be it out of the theater. Oh, God. That's, uh, that's a really great comparison. I mean, it, with the sister character kind of throwing in an interesting... sort of shade, though, there, too, because, like, you know, Travis is such a lone wolf, but, uh, you know, Larry can't be, but maybe that's actually kind of made him even more screwy. You know, being a caretaker, you know, if you're, in your right mind, is very stressful and emotionally can wear on you. Being a caretaker when you already have all these sexual issues... Uh, and it's your sister, and you have guilt. I mean, uh, poor Larry. He didn't, just didn't have a chance in this life. I can see the parallels, but
3: Travis is so isolated from other humans that he's a kind of distilled Larry in a sense, that, in where they stripped off everything extraneous except the twisted thoughts in his own mind. And uh, who's to say the Scorsese he didn't use this as one of the touchstones for Taxi Driver as well? I mean, he would have been familiar with the film. And that kind of New York sleaze aspect, uh, I think this may well possibly have been an influence on Taxi driver.
2: So let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. <laughs>
1: We used to put scum like you into concentration camps. You're
2: into art, maybe? What do you have? This is outstanding. Have you published this in Finland? It would be easier to publish this in the Vatican. I can't get
1: with this man enough. Wait, i ei get my boss to register. That man is
2: going to be an international Gorgeous can i draw you tom of finland i'm doug it's california Hello. these men are moved by you tom sir
1: it's an honor these are your men you make these different boys feel special beautiful you better go to prison for this aren't you afraid Young men, old couples, straight and gay, all yearning to love.
2: Smile. That's a mighty nice uniform you're wearing, sir. Thank you. As you may or may not have heard, I'll be taking a little break from the projection booth while I'm over here in Shanghai. So you may not even miss me, though, as I'll be catching up on editing of some bonus content, including next week's discussion of the new film, Tom of Finland, where I'll be joined by Maitland McDonough. Until then, I want to thank this week's co host Terry and Heather. Terry, what is keeping you busy these days, sir?
3: This week, I am putting up another YouTube video. I'm trying to do classic film remakes that are better than the original. So I've got a few of those lined up, so I'm putting that out. And uh, apart from that, I've got Paleo Cinema Podcast and the Martian Driving Podcast, which keep me busy. I'm kind of either retired or unemployed, and I haven't quite decided which yet, but they give me lots of time to put out content, and I'm very
2: happy doing that i got some uh, episodes of the projection booth if you want to edit those for me. My people will talk to your people. Okay, good, good, good. I'm sure that this will come out a little bit after your new video, so what kind of controversial uh, things are you tackling as far as remakes that are better than the originals?
3: I'm not doing anything particularly controversial. The fact that things like The Maltese Falcon was the third remake the Maltese Falcon and things like that and kind of hipping people to the stuff in classic cinema they might not be familiar with I'm also then doing miscasting in movies as the subsequent follow up to that and I'm going controversial with that because one of the miscast actors I'm putting in there is Roger Moore as James Bond so I'm going to play with that a little bit and probably piss off some people which always makes me happy
2: and Terry will you do me a big favor and once you see it can you let us know how Call Girl 77 is
3: I'm very happy to do that. I'll uh, I'll let you both know how it goes. Fantastic!
2: Oh,
0: fantastic! Oh my god! <laughs> 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 Mike,
2: Mike and I are
0: hive-minding over here. <laughs> yes, yes, we are bored.
2: Yeah. And Heather, what's been uh, filling your coffers with gold?
0: Um, unfortunately, not Criswell because anytime you're more gold I always think of Orgy of the Dead where he's like more gold I love Chriswell. <laughs> well I just appeared on an episode of your friend of mine's, Aaron Peterson's podcast The Hollywood Outsider uh, where we talked about building the perfect horror movie uh, and also speaking of which you can read my article about the cult horror anthology film Trick or Treat over at DiabolikMagazine.com uh, and last but never ever least the latest episode of Hell's Bells is live uh, so you can listen to me and my brilliant partner crime, Kat Ellinger, as we talk about the key adult films of Radley Metzger, the late great wow. uh, I love, yes, uh, there's been a labor of love, me and her, were both uh, huge Radley Metzger, of course Mike, my, my first uh, Projection Booth episode ever was opening a Misty Beethoven so it uh, means a lot, you know, love Metzger and, uh, and for all that and other sundries check out my own website at mondoheather.com
3: Misty Beethoven, I'm going to have to put that down as a better remake of My Fair Lady
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah my fair lady did not have jamie gillis in it so i, mean, yeah. that's <laughs> I love rex harrison though
2: yeah if you guys want to check that out check out uh the opening of misty beethoven episode go on over to projection-boot.com you know, like I said earlier, taking a break from the show, but only have like 300, 400 episodes if you want to go back and take a listen to that. I just posted yesterday uh, about Martin and people are like, oh, Martin, you didn't, you covered Martin? I was like, yeah, we covered Martin a couple years ago. So there's a lot of stuff in the back catalog I would highly recommend people check out. So thanks again, Terry and Heather, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Again, go over to projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode and you'll find out that that whole list of old episodes that we did you also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show every donation and every rating we get helps the projection move take over the world mm-hmm.
1: So bad. you wearing, and how long have you been wearing them? Well, I lift my fingers do the walking. To